Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to your book the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. Firstly, a huge thank you to all the listeners who have been reading and supporting my new novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. If you'd like to order a signed copy, you can order from the Margate Bookshop and they deliver across the UK or ask at your favourite local and I'll send them a book plate. This Friday, the 21st of May, I'll be at the Bath Festival with Caleb Azuma Nelson. At the time of recording, some tickets are still available online. And do listen out for more festival news. All being well, public health-wise, I'll also be at the EA Festival on the 1st of August, and there are some really fun book events at Henley Lit Fest with dates coming up. Now, on to today's guest. We're so lucky to have, and I don't say this lightly, a publishing legend, Judy Piakas. We all know Piakka's books, but we might not know that this was a business Gigi founded from a bedroom in Essex in 1979. We're celebrating Gigi's brilliant memoir, Ahead of Her Time, and we talked about how Gigi foresaw the boom in smart self-help, how she brought Bridgerton to our attention, and she is responsible for introducing flowers in the attic to millions of wide-eyed readers. We had some technical trouble and we had to use our backup recording, so we're afraid the sound isn't of the optimum quality. We hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment. After this very strange year we have had, and I think we're all still having it really, did your reading habits change at all? One of the things that I've especially enjoyed about this year, actually I feel a bit guilty admitting that I enjoyed anything this year, but I have enjoyed lots of things. And one of them was that I have had the opportunity to spend more time reading. My taste has always been very commercial. Um, So I have read all the latest crime and thriller novels, um, but I have really been enjoying fiction. And I have wonderful nonfiction books on my shelves that I have acquired over the years. And I keep saying to myself, go on, read one, or start one, or dip into one, and the pandemic and the the emotional intensity of how we're living has made it harder to read non-fiction, but I have enjoyed reading more books and fewer articles on social media. That sounds like a very smart and mentally healthy way to be. I think we we don't really want to be in the world. I certainly don't want to be in the world. We were talking to uh, Patricia Lockwood um, a couple of weeks ago and she was talking about how she's got a real fondness at the moment for anything that's written set in around the 30s. Um, as a publishing company in the 80s, 
we were offered so many books set in the 1930s and during the Second World War and after, and we published quite a few of them. And at this time in my life, I find it really difficult to read books about the Holocaust and about the pain that people went through. And I think it's wonderful that there is this revival of interest. It just so happened that last week I had the chance to talk to Heather Morris, who wrote The Tattooist of Auschwitz, um, because I was part of an event that she was involved with. And I was delighted to meet her. And I went on her, her website and I listened to a number of her interviews and I couldn't quite bring myself to read the book, um, which was okay because I was facilitating. So I, I wasn't required to read it. And I think it's it's just that there's so much pain in the world now that for me, it's actually hard to read about even more pain. Nevertheless, um, I'm so happy that people are reading about this period. And the author that I mentioned to you before, who I recently discovered, is a guy called Joseph Cannon. And I hadn't ever, I hadn't ever been aware of him. So he writes thrillers. And most of them are set in the period just after the Second World War in different countries in Europe. And his characters are always a mix of dark and light because, of course, they're spies. He's very good at enabling you to feel sympathy for them, even when they might be doing terrible things. And so I spent the first few months of lockdown working my way through his backlist of seven or eight. And he even had a new book come out. So it's quite a while since I found a new author to explore like that. And that was really lovely. And I I recommend him if you like really dense spy thrillers set in different parts of Europe and the US. Are you someone who really likes to work out with any kind of crime thriller how it's going to end? And, you know, are you trying to solve the puzzle as you read or are you enjoying all of the handbrake turns and being swept along? Um, I am so not wanting to work anything out and I want to be surprised. And one of my favourite crime authors is um, Anne Cleves. And so I've read all her Vera series, all her Jimmy and Shetland series. And it's very rare when I can work out who the villain is. And just once or twice, there has been a glimpse. I remember reading one of the books and the villain um, was identified by me as a possible suspect because she was described in an early chapter as being unexpectedly strong. And I put that thought away and it turned out that she was the one who wielded the spade later on. (laughs) But usually, usually, um, because it's escapist fiction, I really want to escape and not do any work. Oh, I think I'm with you there. I don't read uh, much in the way of crime I think the sort of genre fiction is wonderful like you I read very very commercially I think my sort of fantasy land is um I love um Jilly Cooper with a passion and Jackie Collins and I think that in the way that um I've got friends who love fantasy and they feel as though they have to be actually traveling to another galaxy to escape Jackie Collins is my sort of insane you know big pink limousines uh that's my spaceship well um it's always interesting how tastes change 
Um, so there was a period in my life when I didn't read any nonfiction at all. Um, when I was younger, when I was in my 20s. And then in my 20s, I was publishing reprints. And so I read many authors who'd been very successful in the 30s, 40s and 50s. So I suppose, as you mentioned before, reading authors whose novels were set in the 30s, I suppose I had my fill then and of the beautiful way that authors express themselves during that time, because it is different from the way authors write now, because our language is rather different. Um, then I went on to a lot of commercial novelists. Um, we published Danielle Steele, um, Virginia Andrews, uh, Cynthia Freeman, um, lots of other popular authors of their time in hardback. And then we began to develop our own fiction list. Um, we did uh, romance and chick lit. We were never um, quite so strong at publishing crime. It's always much more difficult to develop a new crime author. Women, I, I always believe that women are much more ready to take a chance on an author they haven't heard of. Um, and that's, that's always quite interesting. It means you could take more chances. And then when we established our own nonfiction list, then I began to read nonfiction in a way that I never had before. Um, so that, that was wonderful because it was like a whole new world opening up to me. I'd like to say my taste changed, but it, I did become much more interested in nonfiction um, than in fiction for many years. And, uh, and now I think it's fiction because of the pandemic, but other, otherwise it's non-fiction every now and again um, but I do read more literary writers um, beside my bed at the moment I, I'm in the middle of a strange a stranger city by Linda Grant um, and I'm a great fan of Linda Grant uh, because she's such a beautiful writer this particular book is all about London and, and it's particularly poignant because it was written before the pandemic. And so for anybody who spends a lot of time in London or has always lived in London, it, it's poignant because this is how it was. And she describes the city and the different people and different areas of the city and how people feel about the city. She describes it so beautifully that it is a real homage to London. And I'm really enjoying that. And before that, I read Tessa Hadley, late in the day. Love that book. Um, yes, I, um, I've, I've really enjoyed that as well. Again, very contemporary, contemporary London, contemporary relationships. Um, there's very much a strong sense of time and place in her work. Was there a particular book, sort of early at the beginning of the Piaticus New York career that you published that really made you tingle? Can you remember any of the titles where they came to you and you thought, oh my goodness, we've got a live one? Um, well, I do remember feeling that when I read Flowers in the Attic. It's such a weird, creepy book. And I, I remember we, we were sent this, I was sent three or four chapters and HarperCollins had bought the book. They were going to publish it straight into paperback. Because at the time that Flowers in the Attic first came out, the paperback publishers were enjoying themselves, developing new talent by publishing straight into paperback. That was their thing. And we were doing hardbacks for libraries. And I read the first four chapters and I thought, wow, 
this is amazing. And while I always had to manage risk very carefully, I thought I'm just going to go for this because HarperCollins are expecting to give it a big marketing budget. And it, it is very unique. Her voice is really special. So um, we did publish that book. And of course, it was hugely successful. And um, when my daughter was 14, she, um, she came home from school one day and she said, Mum, there's, there's a book that I really want to read. All the other girls are reading it. And I thought, oh, what could that be? She said, will you order it for me? It's called, yes. I said, flowers in the attic. I said, darling, I published it. I probably said we published it. Um, and that was such an amazing moment for both of us. She was so excited. I was so excited. And of course, she loved the book, as did all her school friends. But it wasn't originally published as a book for young adults, but they adopted it for themselves. I think that's often the way, isn't it? That's probably, I would say, if there are maybe three or five books that come up with the greatest frequency when I talk to people about what they read, Flowers in the Attic is absolutely one of them. As you say, she has a unique voice. It's a unique story. And it's so thrilling and creepy. My Sweet Audrina was my first VC Andrews. And that's my favourite one out of timing and loyalty, I guess. And, you know, my parents had it. It was the, uh, their copy. And we never discussed the fact that I was reading it. And I think I probably, as soon as I got a bit in, I was like, oh, I don't really want them to know that I am reading this. I have to keep putting it back on the shelf so they don't notice the gap. The worst thing to give to teenagers, but also the absolute, absolute best thing. And I think that's how you foster a love of reading is by publishing those books where you think, oh, should I be reading this? But I'm addicted. <laughs> I mean, I've always felt that children should read whatever they want. Um, the adults don't need to say to children, oh, you know, maybe you shouldn't be reading that. And they don't need to hide anything because I don't think a child will read a book if they're not ready for it. Um, my granddaughter is a prodigious reader and um, recently I gave her Gone with the Wind. She wasn't ready, she's 12 now, but she wasn't ready for it a year ago and I'm, it's on her shelf, she'll pick it up when she's ready. Um, and I always think it, it doesn't, you don't have to worry because if you were as a parent too concerned about your child, they're not going to understand what you might think they would understand. They wouldn't necessarily read into, into it what you think is there. And if it doesn't hold their interest, they're just going to put it down anyway. And of course, the more you say they shouldn't read something, the more they're going to want to anyway. Yeah, I think my sweet Audrina was the fourth. Yeah, because um, Petals in the Wind came next after flowers in the attic and it's funny because I can see the covers now we had this very straight I mean we had this very very striking cover which may have been the American cover and it was a woman's face surrounded by flowers and it was very very avant-garde for its time so you couldn't really miss it when you saw it in a shop I'm just curious what are the other books that come up most often that people think of Quite a lot of Dilly Cooper, Forever by Judy Bloom, is often mentioned as the book that was passed around at school. Um, not, you know, in a sort of racy sense, but um, the book that got me through, the, or the series of books that got me through the first lockdown, and like you, it was that heavenly, the Cazalet Chronicles, heavenly, heavenly thing, the perfect thing for when the world is falling down. Oh, I love Elizabeth. I love Elizabeth Jane Howard. 
And I remember reading um, that series and other books of hers many, many years ago. And I think probably in the last two years, I saw a recently reissued book of hers in, um, well, in my local bookshop, which is actually Waterstones. And I, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to read that again. Do you know, I'm getting excited even thinking about it. So I bought it and I bought it home. And a couple of days later, um, I arranged spontaneously to go and visit my aunt, who's in her early 90s. And I thought, what shall I take her? Because it was spontaneous. And I took her that book and I haven't replaced it. So I'm so happy that you just mentioned uh, the Cadillac Chronicles because I'm going to get off the phone and order them. I think that would be perfect to read next. And it's interesting because just the thought of that series has evoked in me. Uh, it's almost a, a, it's a, it's a nostalgia for that period and that writing and that Englishness. I think that so often the books that I love the most are, there are so many where I couldn't tell you the plot, but I could tell you absolutely how I felt when I read them. I'm not very good at remembering plots. And um, and I, when, when I was a publisher and Americans used to pitch to me and they'd sit there and I mean, I, obviously not many English, well, some English agents did pitch to us, but usually they just sent things in. But Americans would sit there at book fairs and they would pitch me the plot and I would sort of say, oh, don't worry about the plot. If you think I want to read it, just send it to me. <laughs> because I knew I wouldn't be very good at pitching the plot to anybody else. I just wanted to see if it held my attention. Are there any books that you really, really wish you'd published or books that you fought for and not quite been able to get away? It was more non-fiction in our case because fiction um, usually went to the large, I mean, the most exciting fiction usually went to the large corporates, which was fair enough. We were good at launching a lot of first novelists, so that was exciting for us. Um, non-fiction books that got away. I remember we were the underbidders for the Celestine Prophecy, which was absolutely huge at the time. And, and we were struggling with how we were going to sell it um, because if you've read it, you can see why we were struggling because it's actually fiction, but it needs to be in the non-fiction shelves, a bit like Paolo Coelho. Um, so that got away. Um, and then there, were, then there were a couple of big non-fiction books that we were outbid for. Um, I remember a guy called Harville Hem Hendricks who wrote wonderful books about relationships. And I remember being outbid for one of his books, which is still selling very well in the shops. And this was probably 25 years ago, more maybe. And it was by a publisher who didn't have a very big mind, body, spirit, self-help, popular psychology list at the time. And I remember feeling this is so annoying because we will know how to publish this and they won't. But of course, all publishers go through that feeling every now and again. And when a publisher decides they want to get into an area that they're not really known for, of course, they're going to be trying to buy what they think is the best on offer at that time, even if they're not sure how they're going to publish it because it's so new. 
Um, so that, that happened more to us with um, nonfiction. Um, but every now and again, there's a book um, that slipped through our fingers. There were also books that um, we didn't offer on. And, and I think one of the ones that always sticks in my mind is by Susan Jeffers. And many people will know the title. It's called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Yes. So that landed on my desk. And I was... I didn't even read it because I thought I can't, this was, I mean, it probably came out in the 90s, early 90s. And I thought, I cannot believe that English people are going to walk into a bookshop, see this book and have the courage to pick it up and take it to the till because at the time there was no internet. So you really had to, you know, you really had to think carefully about titles. I thought, who's going to have it? in their hand and indicate to the bookseller that they're fearful. But of course I was 100% wrong there because it became a massive bestseller. And that always made me laugh. And it was always a lesson to open the book, not just to turn it down based on the title, which in any event we could have changed because at that time you didn't have to have the same title because we didn't have global publishing in the way that um, we did have a, a few years later. I'd love to know a little more about that time, you publishing nonfiction when that was such a, as far as I understand it, a quite a new and emerging market for readers as you say it's really interesting that we've seen this transition where there was a time when I feel the fear and do it anyway was a really quite an off-putting title and in I guess what 25 30 odd years there's been a sort of huge transition for like you know wellness and you know every other book has a name like feel the fear and do it anyway in, in my um business memoir um ahead of her time I do talk about how society changed during the 90s and so at the beginning of the 1990s if you went into a bookshop and Waterstones only started around then so what we're talking about with bookshops is WH Smith and independent bookshops uh, I'm not sure that I don't think supermarkets were selling books then um, and Boots were selling books interestingly um, Woolworths but most accounts were WH Smith and independent bookshops. And if you went into a bookshop, say like Foils, because there were a handful of wonderful bookshops in London, this was before Waterstones, um, and you looked for the self-help area, um, it probably had half a dozen books on it, if you could find it at all. And 10 years later, by the turn of the century, every single publisher was publishing books in this area. And, and I think what happened was that society began to recognize that these books had something that would be helpful to them. After that, they began to say, well, what's all this about? Which is sort of quite interesting because it makes me think like at this point, we're going through the pandemic, but in two or three years, when we've come through and when we've got time to sit and catch our breath and look at how our lives are, we will be asking what was all that about, but it will take a little time for that to happen. So when, we, when that question was asked earlier in the 90s, people began to look inwards, 
more. Well, they hadn't really done it much at all. Um, whereas now we do have more tools enabling us to look inward. So there was an opportunity to look at books about dreams. And there was a lot, there was an opportunity to think about meditation, to think about how alternative therapies could help. And people also began to be more interested in astrology and in what our psychics had to share. In the 19, in the middle of the 1990s, everybody got into Feng Shui and all these ancient um, ways of looking at the world, mystical ways of looking at the world, suddenly became of much more interest to everybody because we were exploring what is going on. I've just been sent the anniversary edition of Bridget Jones' Diary, which I uh, read, and I think maybe just before my teens, and I've read and reread that book so many times, and it's one of my all-time favourites, but I love... Um, I don't know if you remember when um, Bridget's friend Tom in the book briefly goes missing and he's fine in the end, but everyone's very, very scared. And at the time, I think Bridget and Jude have just got very into feng shui and it is indicated that um, Tom's disappearance is linked to the fact that Bridget has a waste paper basket in her family and helpful friend's corner and she's got to remap her flat. <laughs> I love that story. And I certainly didn't remember it. Although when I read it at the time, um, Bridget Jones, that is, I certainly would have laughed because we published five or six books on Feng Shui. And of course, we had the office Feng shui And of course, we did, like, we had to repaint it. We had to create a new, new signage. We all had to move our desks. I mean, actually, it seemed to work because we subsequently did really well. And the most successful book that we created during my time uh, as publisher at Piatka's Books was um, Clear Your Clutter with Feng Shui. So you didn't know that, but your story of the waste paper bin seems to chime perfectly with that. <laughs> um, but actually, Karen Kingston, who wrote Clear Your Clutter with Feng Shui, she was the first person to talk about decluttering. So since then, obviously, authors like Marie Kondo mm. um, have become very well known. Um, and many other authors have written about decluttering. But we were actually the first... Um, and this little book, Clear Your Clutter with Feng Shui, became a bestseller in so many languages. And when and it was probably, I mean, we sold over a million copies of it in the English speaking language editions. And it was massive in Germany. So Karen must have sold so many millions. But actually, as it was about Feng Shui, and she was the expert, it is not really that much of a surprise. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. We'll be back to Gigi soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. Sontag, Her Life, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography by Benjamin Moser. This is dazzlingly thorough and fascinating, and while Moses' writing and research is never anything short of rigorous, I love that this book straddles the barrier between 20th century history and gossip. Sontag's world encompassed art, literature and politics, and Moser really captures the energy and tension of the time as well as her role within them. Sontag, Her Life is published by Penguin and out now. Now back to Judy. I really was curious about your relationship with reading growing up. And I was wondering when you were 14, what was the book that everyone else was reading that you were desperate to read? Did you have a flowers in the attic of your own then? In my cluttered, because decluttering has never actually arrived in my office yet. (laughs) Um, But in my very cluttered office, actually, you can't see it, but you'd be horrified if you could. Um, I remember having the most cluttered desk at one point in my office and then um, an author who wrote books on detoxing walked in and I hadn't remembered to tidy it and I could see her expression of horror Um, but I do have somewhere in my office the diary that I wrote when I was 15 or 16 and I read through it not very long ago and I remember loads of Neville Shute books and loads of Alistair MacLean, um, loads of Mary Renault um, and then I did read more serious books. I read quite a lot of Russian novels. Um, and it was, re- I mean, I actually had read, I was reading two or three books a week. Um, this diary, I think, was in my 15th year. Um, so I always had a passion for reading. And, um, and I always did want to work with books. And I was never very good at interviews, because I remember hearing that applicants for interviews for jobs in publishing were advised not to say that they wanted to go into publishing because they love books but for me that was always why I wanted to go into publishing because I didn't really know anything about publishing I just knew that I wanted to work with books I remember I loved the novels of Leon Uris as well which I read as a teenager um, and I, I always remember Exodus which came into my mind while we were talking a few minutes ago, um, when, when I talked about Susan Jeffers and whether 
I should have looked at the book because we could have changed the title. Um, and actually with Exodus, um, which was a very long novel about Israel and Palestine, a massive bestseller at the time. And you get to the last page and um, there's a spoiler alert coming here because it's about 500 pages and the heroine is killed. And I always remember thinking, I wouldn't have let that happen. I would definitely not have let that happen. And I remember telling my husband and he said, oh, it never occurred to me that an editor might decide whether the hero or heroine might survive on the last page. And, and I, I always wondered whether if the book had been published later, whether the heroine or had a different editor, whether they would have killed poor Karen off at the very end. <laughs> it was such a downer. You know, when you read a whole book and you've invested so much in it and you care so much, you really don't want to lose your, your beloved characters on the last page with no warning. Well, what you were saying at the start about escapism and, you know, you don't want the real world to intrude. I think obviously it depends so much on the book and the author and the style, but something that shatters the universe that you've hurled yourself into, it is. But then I wonder whether it's a sign of just how powerful the book is and how much you got from it that you're still, you know, indignant now. But I mean, I think that's, I mean, and I think it's the mark of a good book and of really good publishing. I've written books and I've worked with some really, really talented editors and it's been a privilege to do so. And when I read, I never think, oh, maybe the editor suggested this or didn't suggest this. No, well, nor did I. But it's very interesting. And of course, you're absolutely right. I'm still angry. I'm just, well, I am angry, which is sort of quite interesting. Um, in that I have expressed myself about this book in this way all these years later. And I suppose it's also about the, the impact that that book made on me at the time. Um, and he, he was a huge bestseller. Um, again, the period after the Second World War. Um, and maybe I liked that period better because I knew that although people were still dying and people were still poor and hungry, at least the war was over and, and, and they weren't doing quite so many terrible things to one another. That reminds me of a book I really, really loved that came out last year, A V for Victory by Lissa Evans, which is, I think, the third in her trilogy. Mm, that looks like a book that I would probably enjoy. So another book that I read recently redhead by the side of the road and tyler because she is an, a favorite of mine i probably read all her books and i've got to the point now where i'm going back and starting and reading them all over again and what i like about Anne tyler is she's such a beautiful writer about the minutiae the smallest details of ordinary people's everyday lives um so that is always such a treat. Um, she's, she's one of my favourite authors. And then Anne Patchett's another one. And I think because I published so many American authors, I'm always um, very comfortable reading American um, popular authors. I fell in love with Anne Patchett last year. And I think I always was a bit nervous that she'd be quite grand. And I think because I'd heard about State of Wonder, and I thought, oh, gosh, that sounds really 
epic. And I think what you were saying about Anne Tyler, I love very close, detailed observations of small things. And I like books to have, if not, you know, a laugh riot all the way through. I like there to be humour in there. And then, oh, wow, the Dutch house, it was on a pile for ages, sort of, you know, wagging its finger at me and frowning. And then I did, I read State of Wonder as well, and Bel Canto is the next on my pile. I don't think there are many writers as perceptive as she is about emotional intelligence and how we think and how we live and the gap between the interior and the exterior. It's interesting you mention Anne Patchett because last year she was in, um, not last year, because we're now in 2021, in in the summer of 2019, she was in the UK, and she is an author who both my daughter and I really enjoy, and um, in fact, it was my daughter who teaches English, whose English is much better than mine ever was and ever will be. She had recommended Bel Canto to me, um, and so I began to embark on reading Anne Patchett, um, and then one of my favourite books that I've read in the last few years is Commonwealth. So you haven't mentioned that one, um, but that's probably that book that I enjoyed the most. Um, and it covered a, a large span of the life of a particular family. Um, but anyway, my daughter and I went to hear Anne Patchett talking in person when she was here about the Dutch house. And I... I will always have such affection for the Dutch house because my daughter and I shared that experience. And then we both read the book and enjoyed it very much. Um, but I think Commonwealth is still my favourite Anne Patchett novel. So that is a treat waiting for you, except that my daughter didn't like it as much as I did. So whether that's personal taste or a generational thing, I don't know. I was wondering, have you, have you been able to share your memoir with your family? When I set out to write the memoir, I um, it was a project that I set for myself during 2019. I'd written it because I had spent some time with someone the year before who looked at my palm and advised that that was what I should be doing. So it was very strange, but at the same time, I knew that she was right, that I had a story to tell. So during 2019, I embarked on this story and I did tell um, my daughter I was writing it she was the first person who read it she said well it's fine mummy it doesn't really tell me a lot that I didn't know about you because I've lived it whereas I thought there would be something in it she might discover that she didn't already know and then I sent it to my niece um, Laura who also um, works who works in publishing and Laura said exactly the same as Leah, my daughter. Um, she said, well, yes, but I know all this. So I thought, oh, well, I'm obviously not giving away any secrets. Um, and neither of them seemed to think that I needed to change it. Um, and my husband will probably never read it. And um, it's quite interesting because, well, actually, he might pick it up, I suppose, when it's a book. But it's quite interesting because I went to a writing class uh, to help me get started and um, and in this class, uh, one of the other students, um, she 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 was she wasn't living with anyone at the time, and she said, "Oh, I love the idea that you're reading something to us, and then you might go home and you might read what you've written with your partner, and then they'll sh and share it with them." And I said, "I'd be amazed if my husband ever reads this book. I just don't think he could stand it." <laughs> <laughs> 
I got home, and I, and I, and a couple of weeks later, I was telling my husband about a bit that I was writing, and he said to me, "You know, I'll probably never read it, don't you?" And I said, "Sure," and it's not a problem. I said, "I think that might be the wisest course of action for you, seeing as <laughs> there is a chapter about you. You might not like what I've written, and I'm not going to be able to change it." It's so intimate, isn't it? Um... I've written a couple of non-fiction books that have elements of memoir and one is about, I grew, I've got five younger sisters and I needed to, them to read it because I needed them to give me copy approval. And the thing, the, you know, we assume that we're all very close and that we all know each other really, really well. And obviously, of course, you know, with families, it's you're all unreliable narrators, or we are certainly, that the way I remember something isn't necessarily how it happened. I love the idea of the amount of material that you must have had growing up with five sisters. I mean, that must have been quite extraordinary um, to have so many daughters in the house, to have so many sisters. And then as a novelist, to be examining all the different dynamics, all the different relationships, your relationships with your sisters, and of course with your parents, and your parents' relationships with each of you, and possibly with groups of you, and then each sister's different relationship with each other sister. I mean, you would have enough material for a lifetime. <laughs> so, and it may be that because there were more of you, that you might not have known each other quite so intimately, because obviously your ages would have been spaced out more, as if they had, if you perhaps just had one sibling. So that might have affected it as well. I love novels about families and about sisters and I've always believed that I mean the obvious examples are things like you know Pride and Prejudice and Little Women and at a time when it was much harder I think for a writer to justify writing a book about the relationship between women and how that how that worked and so to choose to write about a group of sisters or a group of siblings was a way of kind of getting around that and I think it maybe became a convention. I have never loved a lot of novels that were written in the Victorian period. Um, so it's hard to, I mean, not that Jane Austen was, um, but it's hard to um, to think about other examples. Um, I was no good at English literature at school. So I just mentioned that for any listeners who think that you have to be good at English literature to get a job in publishing, um, because it, it is obviously pretty helpful if you're going to be an editor, but there are lots of, um, an editor of a particular kind of book, um, but I've managed to, um, I, I actually got the lowest pass mark in English literature when I did my um, exams and to leave school. Um, well, I gave it up, actually. I didn't even do it to A-level. Um, so we have to say, um, people over the years would ask me what I had read and have I read this and have I read that? And I would say, well, no, it's not that I don't want to. It's just that when you're a publisher, you spend most of your time reading books, many of which are unpublishable. So you don't spend enough time reading the books that you might have been able to read um, if, if you were not chained to your desk with all the typescripts that come in all the time. Um, so I'm, I've never been great about discussing aspects of literature where I'm, I don't consider myself to be sufficiently well read. 
But I have to say, where women are concerned, we always want to read about relationships. When I thought, when you mentioned Jilly Cooper, I immediately thought of a couple of other authors who were writing during that period. One of them was Maeve Finchie. Oh, I love her. Um, and then, and then there was Penny, um, whose surname escapes me. And they wrote these five hundred and six hundred page novels, and they were all about families. And not a lot really happened, but you could be engrossed. For the whole of the novel. It's like it's not Penny Vincenzi, is it? Or yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, well, she wrote. I mean, I used to love her novels, um, and I and I loved Maeve Binchy, and the um, and I think women love to read about relationships, and maybe that's why women will often explore. Um, they'll often explore a novel if the cover looks good, the the title sounds right, the blurb sounds intriguing. Whereas men want to buy a thriller which has got a brand. I think that's really, really fascinating. Um, And I suppose as well, it's about the volume of reading a person does. And I wonder whether, you know, in so many ways, you must have been the perfect person to, to be so successful in publishing because you know you're a reader and you know what grabs it, you know what makes you want to turn a page and what makes reading an absolute pleasure and I think someone who is you know hello I'm an expert in Victorian literature and I'm very grand and very literary and I wonder if that's what you were saying about you know the worst thing you can possibly say in a publishing interview is about how much you love reading because I think that people think of it as being something that's a little bit maybe academic and dry and not accessible and to as I think you've proved do it well you need to know what you as a reader love to access, for want of a better word. Um, Well, it's very interesting because in England it's quite different from the States. So we always published the kind of book that you started reading. You didn't always want to put it down. You just wanted to keep going. So my bedtime reading, um, if it's a thriller and the thriller writer's a good storyteller, I'm really going to not put that book down until I actually can feel my eyes closing. When it's a, a writer who, who is a beautiful literary writer whose work I'm really enjoying, but I'm enjoying it because of their selection of words and the feelings they evoke, but not so much the dynamic push of the story then I make the decision as to when to stop reading and I mean I I can stop right okay I'll get to the end of this chapter and I'll stop Um, but with a good thriller writer or 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 a woman's writer who's a little more down market shall we say actually that seems unjust Um, but um, well if I let's say if I were reading a Nora Roberts I would keep reading Nora Roberts until I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore And in America, where Nora Roberts is the most successful women's commercial fiction writer, if I say to an American, um, when I was a publisher, we published Nora Roberts, oh, I love Nora. Now, if I were in a room full of English people who enjoyed more literary fiction and read an occasional Nora Roberts, they might not even admit 
that they had read Nora Roberts. So there is sadly um, an, a bit of a, an element of snobbery in the UK um, when people discuss who they like reading. So we were absolutely able to take advantage of this as publishers and publish books that had a massive audience. Actually, um, Piak has published all the Julia Quinn Bridgerton series. So we published them in 2002, and my colleague Gillian and I were, well, Gillian briefed the covers. Gillian actually brought the books into the company. We published the whole series. Um, but if I had handed them out um, to a rather more select literary group, they would have probably never opened them when they got home. But now, of course, everybody's going to want to read them. But whether they'll admit to reading them as much as they love the TV series, that remains to be seen. Um, but that was exactly the kind of book that we were enjoying publishing at Piatkis. And um, we didn't have so much competition because most editors wanted to make their name with rather more literary authors, at least in the UK. I do think that's interesting, though, isn't it, that everyone is watching Bridgerton on Netflix. But And I do think that, you know, people will be happy to read the books, but it's funny how TV, you can be quite open, I think, about loving something like Bridgerton, whereas with books still, that does linger. I must confess, I've never read any Nora Roberts, and it, she sounds like the sort of writer I would adore. Where should I start? She's probably written over 500 books. She is so prolific. Um, I'm not sure what her present output is, um, but she was, at the time that I was working with her, writing five books a year. So one would be um, a psychological uh, romance, really strong, feisty heroines with very interesting jobs, like they might be firefighters or police women or data scientists or whatever. Well, I'm not sure if they had data scientists then, but they certainly would be now. <laughs> um, so there was one of those a year which came in a hardback and a mass market paperback. And then there was a trilogy um, which usually was published straight into mass market paperback, and they were rather more romantic and often featured three women. So each woman had a book to herself, and then the three stories were in, entwined. And then she also wrote, um, the, wrote two novels a year under the name J.D. Robb, um, and they are serial killers with the same characters. She's written 51 now. Um, developed throughout each novel and they were set in a slightly um, futuristic time period. So Nora really, really kept us busy. I mean, one of the reasons she was so successful was because of her prodigiousness, which was extraordinary. Um, but Nora Roberts was a household name and it's still a household name in the States. Every new J.D. Robb gets into the bestseller list here in hardback. I can say that because I've seen it. Um, and Nora is now always on the front tables of display when the new books are published. Um, but we didn't succeed in making her a household name here. It's so interesting, isn't it, that the markets are really similar, but very much not the same. I mean, as a publisher, we bought lots of American books. In fact, that was probably one of our specialist expertise, that we could choose the American books that we thought we could sell here, which the larger publishers had missed. We had a whole backlist of escapist fiction. So I could go into a supermarket in America and 
we were publishing like two thirds of the authors on display, whereas because of the internet, we could get to the readers who wanted to read them in the UK. And it didn't matter quite so much if the bookshops didn't have them in stock. Taste has always been different. I mean, if you think about Bridgerton, in England, Georgette Heyer was the person who most people think of in connection with the Regency period Mm. and with that kind of style novel with these sort of feisty, spirited women and these sort of heroes who stand around leaning on doorways, um, several of them taking snuff and wearing waistcoats and cravats. Um, So no one's mentioned Georgette Heyer for a while, but she is, of course, the best of the Regency writers who originated in the UK. Oh, Judy, I could honestly talk to you for weeks and months about books, but very sadly, we are coming to the end of our conversation. Are there any books that you haven't mentioned that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to talk about? My life has been full of books. And um, seeing as we're living in a period where we're all supposed, when I say we're all supposed to be, what I mean is if you're interested in books in the mind, body and spirit and self-help and personal growth and personal development area, you will find that gratitude is a major theme at the moment. So it's not about focusing on what you haven't got, but it is focusing about what you have got. So that question makes me feel extremely grateful for all the books that I have been lucky enough to have had the chance to read and enjoy in my life. And a reminder about how loving books means that you are never really alone. I cannot think of a lovelier note to end on. Thank you so much. This has been such an uplifting conversation. I feel really, really nourished. Um, I've had such a lovely time. With all my heart, thank you. Thank you. It was so lovely to have this conversation with you. Huge thanks to Judy. Ahead of Her Time is published by Watkins Media and out now. Thank you so much for listening. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be in your ears. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from some old guests and occasional shelfies. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd love it if you shared your favourite episodes with your book-loving friends or if you left us a five-star review, which helps new listeners to find us. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Judy at acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. For now, I leave you with this from Anne Lamotte. No matter how people mess with you or let you down or how you let yourself down, a good book means that when you get into bed that night, you have a good hour. I feel like you pay all day for that hour. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.